Well, let's open our Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 5. We're studying the work and the wealth of God in Christ Jesus. That's the theme for the whole book. Specifically now we've come to verses 22 to 33, which are about marriage and then followed by parenting and being a good child. So we've titled this little series, At Home with Christ. And for today, we'll be looking at marriage, which is God's own idea and God's own invention. The first verse of the Bible sets the theological agenda for the rest of the 31,102 verses. You know it well? I'm sure you have it memorized. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, this world, this planet, our solar system that rotates around our sun, the Milky Way, and the, I looked this up and was shocked to see it, the estimated two trillion plus galaxies were all created by the God who reveals himself in the Bible. I looked up a simple internet search. How, how big is the, is the universe? And it said two trillion plus, and I expected to say stars or planets, and it said galaxies. It should come as no surprise to Bible-believing Christians that God invented then, and God created every blessing in his universe, including and especially marriage. Now, I want to say something from the very beginning of our study, because we're going to be here for a few weeks. I am very aware of what this subject does to those who love and know Christ, who are married to a spouse that they love and adore, and that this is going to be a tremendous encouragement to you. I'm also aware that these verses and this te these texts we'll be studying are going to be a tonic for some marriages that have been struggling for a long time and need revitalization. But can I say this? I'm also aware that we have singles who would love to be married, that this is a painful thing to study. I'm also aware we have people who've been widowed or divorced who look with longing hearts at these, these passages, and we're aware that you're here. And I want to ask all of us to be aware of how difficult this can be for whoever hears this, but also those for whom it is difficult and even maybe divorced or widowed or yet to be married, that you would join in praying for those who are married, that we would be faithful stewards of the gift that God's given us. But we can't skip it. I know that it's, it's the next passage and it has instruction for us all. After creating the first man, Adam, out of dust, God created the first woman, Eve, out of one of Adam's ribs. Marriage is precious to God. God invented it in the Garden of Eden. God even performed the first wedding. There was no one else to do it except him. He brought the woman to Adam, and there was some kind of wedding ceremony that ended in bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one's mine. As we noted last time, God finishes his creation and proclaims after each day, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And yet before the, the fall, before sin enters the world, God looks at his creation and says, something's not good. That's a shock to me, honestly. How could he look at 
the creation before the fall and say something's not good. Well, by something not being good, he meant to say, meant for us to understand it's not finished. God says, it is not good on the sixth day after creating man. It's not good. It is not good that man be alone. Thank you, God, for that. It's not good for the man to be alone, so God created the woman to complement and complete the creation. And then he said as Mothtov. Say, what does that mean? Very, exceedingly good. My wife and I have had conversations about this, and she said, you know, it was good until he created the woman. Then it was very good. He's right. God blessed marriage with the joy of companionship. Marriage then is designed by God to give the closest companionship and relationship on this earth between two people. In fact, he designed the physical, spiritual, emotional oneness that makes marriage what he calls the grace of life in 1 Peter. And God uses marriage to tell people about his own love for those who believe in the gospel. That's where we are in Ephesians. After key instruction, the apostle gives to every Christian to be controlled by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, in sync with the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit. He then outlines the resultant attitudes and behaviors that follow from a Christian following Christ and full of the Spirit of God. The believer is filled with the Spirit, and then he speaks to other, others with lyrics, musical lyrics, and a variety of kinds of expression of songs. The believer also lives a life that is thankful to God in every context and experience of life. And the believer gladly submits his or her life to the scrutiny and encouragement of other believers in the fear of Christ. That's Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. But it changes in 22. In Ephesians 5, 22, Paul now turns to the home and then to the workplace. Now, this is significant. He says, walk by the power and the enablement of the Spirit of God. And then the two applications he gives is do it at home, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, children to parents, parents to children, and do it at the workplace, employers to employees, employees to employers. That's significant. The two places we spend most of our life, if not almost all of our life, at home and at work, he said, should be governed by walking with the Spirit of God. Comprehensive. The two places we spend the most of our time, home and work, are radically impacted by our close walk with the Spirit of God. For now, we're looking at this little section that we've titled At Home with Christ. Christ in our home. Paul outlines specific instruction and application to wives and to husbands and to children and to parents. The point is simple, but it's not easy. The gospel shapes our family relationships as does no other influence. The gospel shapes our family relationships, as does no other influence. And there are lots of influences. Your past, your present, your ideas for the future, media, movies, romantic novels. What influences your marriage and your family dynamics? I think it's worthy 
worth us reading the paragraph again, just to set it in our minds. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love, ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. God invented, God supports, God enables marriage. So it should not surprise anyone that Satan hates marriage. He hates especially God-honoring Christian marriages. Why does Satan hate God-honoring Christian marriages? We just read it. Because the passage before us reveals that the great cosmic conflict between the devil and marriage linked to, are linked together. He talks about marriage, and then in the next paragraph, he's going to go and talk about our cosmic struggle with Satan and the demons. Why is Satan after marriage, though? Because marriage, listen, we're going to study, I'm going to say this a bunch today. We're going to get to this in the passage. Marriage is the only reciprocating illustration in the New Testament. You say, what do you mean by that? Reciprocating means that one thing illustrates the other and the other illustrates the one thing. Marriage in this passage is said to illustrate the gospel. And the gospel is said to illustrate marriage. Look back at the text for a minute. It's really almost humorous. He says in verse 30 and uh, verse 31, quoting Genesis, Man shall leave his father and mother, join to his wife. Two shall become one flesh. Talking about marriage. This mystery is great, marriage. But I'm actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Uh, okay, talking about marriage. Okay, but actually that illustrates Christ and the church, so I'm going to talk about that. Nevertheless, verse 33, then he goes back to marriage. Wonderfully bounces back and forth. They both illustrate the other. It's a reciprocating illustration. No other illustration is like that in the New Testament. And it's all about the gospel. And it's illustrated by marriage. The Holy Spirit intends us to use marriage to understand the gospel better, and he also intends for us to understand the gospel so that we can understand marriage. 
If Satan can confuse people about what marriage is, he has a strategic advantage for distracting them about the good news that God saves sinners through the gospel. The biblical concept of marriage, one man for, with one woman for life, is under very public assault today. Satan, who John 8, says, is the father of lies, is lying about it. We are witnessing an entire culture, an entire cultural shift believing the lies of the devil about marriage and the family. <laughs> it's just like Genesis 3 where we find the first question in the Bible. If we were playing Bible trivia and I said, what's the first question ever asked in the Bible? I wonder if you would know what it is. The first question ever asked in God's word is by the devil. And he asked it of Eve and he says, has God really said did he really say that? Did he really mean that? Attacking God's clarity, God's meaning. The devil still uses the same strategy. He uses questions to get people to doubt and reject the authority of what he has said in his word. So how shall we respond to the constant attacks on the truth and truthfulness and design for marriage? Well, we find the battle plan in the example of Jesus. He too was attacked about marriage, about divorce, about the eternal nature of marriage and whether it is eternal or not. To answer that, he quoted scripture. And in Matthew 19, verse four and five, verses four and five, he answers his critics and he says, have you not read? What a great question, question, answer to the question. Have you not read? They ask him about marriage. Have, haven't you read? And he goes back to Genesis. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Jesus unashamedly, unequivocally used the Genesis account for his understanding, his definition, his teaching on marriage, and he took it literally. So should we. Watching the news this week, here's where we are today. Transgender people are pretending to be something that they are not. And the big ask is this. They and our culture are asking us to believe something that's not true. We're asked to participate in a lie that a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man. The point is that very few are asking, a very few, less than a half a percent, and I think that's an exaggeration. Very few people in this world are now asking the rest of us to believe a lie that they've chosen to believe. And unfortunately, some are actually willing to do that. We read last week, last, our last study rather, in 2 Timothy 3, that difficult times were promised. It's interesting because Paul was writing to Timothy, who was pastor at Ephesus, where we were learning about marriage. The presence of difficulty indicates the nearness of Christ's return. And the description of these difficult times reads like our newspapers or the news channels for those who don't read the papers or news apps. Listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, 
boastful, arrogant, revilers, fighters, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And they hold to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Paul says, avoid such men as these. Avoid these people. For among them are those who enter into households. This is interesting. And captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. In other words, they go into the home to try to create havoc there. Always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. But here it is. Evil men will proceed. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There it is. Deceiving and being deceived. That's the world that you woke up to this morning. Especially, especially about marriage. Paul was telling Timothy that the world he lived in and the culture would deteriorate and keep deteriorating and get worse. And it's gotten worser, if I can use bad English. Nothing new to the first century, though. Isaiah 5, woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. There's the deceit again, the lie, and sin as if with cart ropes. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and who call good evil. That's our world, folks. This indictment on the deterioration of culture could have been written yesterday about our own newspapers. Our world laughs at sin, pays to be entertained by sin, pushes and promotes sin with an embarrassing degree of shamelessness, and asks Christians who hold to a biblical standard to be ashamed of our standard. Now, with all that in your mind, we come to our study of Ephesians. But before we even start that, this is, this is almost embarrassing. We have, to, we have to set the rules for the discussion. We're under attack from feminism, theologically. We're under attack by, I'm not making this, word, this phrase up, evangelical feminism those who try to hold to the authority of Scripture but reinterpret it. Transgender ideologies and practice, homosexuality, adultery, and temptations to unfaithfulness were attacked by unchecked immodesty, pornography, immorality and entertainment, dating websites that promote lying, indifference, and even just the basic laziness that can invade all of our relationships where we're not trying as we should so as I said in our last day, we're not going to hurry through this passage. We need to slow down and glean what God has called us to know and to be. And folks, if you know this and if you become this, you will be a pariah in your culture. We must come back to a biblical Christian understanding of marriage of sexuality, of male and female, of sexual intimacy, of gender identity. Much more to say about that. There's a self-evident truth that we must state from the very beginning, cling to this. We are created by God as males or females, period. So we're going to go back and pick up 
we started last time, we only got through one point last time, and we'll add the next two to that this time. Before we even start Ephesians, kind of setting the ground rules, looking at three theological fundamentals for understanding marriage. Three theological fundamentals. You have to understand this, and as I said before, it's almost embarrassing that we have to overstate the obvious to say it, but we have to. I listened to the news yesterday. Three theological fundamentals for understanding marriage. The first is this. God created humans in his image as male and female. This is review. Paul grounds his understanding of marriage in the Genesis account. So does Jesus. Just as a footnote, Paul believed in a talking snake. In 2 Corinthians, he says, As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, I'm afraid that your mind will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Paul believed, as did Jesus, in the historical Genesis account of Adam and Eve. In fact, Paul said in Romans 4 and Romans 5, if you don't have Adam and Eve as legitimate historical figures, you don't have a gospel. That's how important it is. Genesis 1, 24 to 31 is that first high altitude overview of the sixth day of creation and he created man and then he would create woman. Genesis 2, 18 to 25 though, he goes back and gives us the color and the detail on that when he says in verse 18, Genesis 2, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We talked about this last time, Moses you, excuse me, Moses records that Adam is naming all the animals. God has the, the animals come by him, buck and doe and male and female, male and female, male. And then he says, Adam, male, female, male, female, Adam. Then God gives him a nap, takes a rib out, fashions the woman Verse 22, the Lord fashioned a woman from the rib he had taken from the man, brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's like me. I mean, the, the dough was a beautiful dough, but this is something different. At the end of that, God saw all that he had made, verse 31, and it was ma'oth tov, very good Male and female, he created them. It's incredible that we have to begin with the basic definition and difference, but we must. God made our bodies as male and female differently for reproduction. Males are made to father child by production of seed. Women are made to mother children by production of an egg. They are different. And they both give glory to God as being image bearers. It's not like Thomas Aquinas said. Remember the quote I, I, I read to you last time where he said that every embryo starts out as a male and something goes wrong and that's why you have females. No, no. He created males and females to represent his glory and to bear his image. Male and female, he created them. Both. And it'll be different. I find it interesting that during the wilderness wanderings, Moses regulated against transgenderism. Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, 
nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And as I said, this, is, this doesn't mean that Kim and I don't have a shirt that we share. We, we do have some, sometimes she's wearing a shirt. Isn't that my, my T-shirt? She says, yeah, I knew you'd want me to wear it. You're, you're right. I, I, knew, I was thinking that this morning. That's right. This is not talking about sharing a T-shirt. This is talking about dressing as the opposite sex to represent yourself as the opposite sex. And he says, that's an abomination to the Lord your God, an abomination, a condemnable, damnable offense worthy of hell. So let's just blitz through what we did last time. This is just for summary and review. What does it mean when we talk about humans created in God's image as male and female? First of all, that the distinction between males and females is biological and anatomical. I'm almost embarrassed like saying this in public like it's duh. Yes, there's a difference. It's biological. It's anatomical. At the, at the most basic level, it's chromosomes. A female has two X chromosomes. A male has an X and a Y chromosome. That doesn't mean that some people aren't confused about how they want to express themselves. And there is grace for those, those sinful inclinations. Second, this is review. The idea that gender is a social construct is a charade. It's a lie. It's, it's actually only a generation old where people said that gender is different than sex. No, male and female, he created them. There's no third or fourth or fifth or how many letters you want to add to the description. There's two, binary. It's a lie to say that your maleness or your femaleness is a social construct. Third, sexual identity is binary, male and female only, according to Jesus. Again, in Matthew 19, Jesus is answering confusion about marriage and divorce. And he says, have you not read? And he goes back to the Genesis account, male and female, he created them. He quotes the actual image bearing of God as male and female. And fourth, again, just review, sexual identity is part of bearing the image of God. If you're a male, God made you a male to give him unique glory. If you're a female, God made you female to give him unique glory. And you are perfectly made in his image, fearfully and wonderfully made as he designed you. Let's be clear from our study of, in our, the beginning of our study on marriage and sex and gender. God created two distinct sexes. He created man, male, and, and women, female, both as bearing his image uniquely, Genesis 1.27. So let me just remind you, if you hold to a view of gender and sexuality and sexual purity and the glory of God in marriage that's biblical, you should expect to be prepared to be described as old-fashioned, out-of-date, archaic, chauvinistic, backwards, legalistic, even puritanical. I have heard all of those cast at my own theology. But let's develop our convictions out of faith rather than fear. And we covered that in great detail last time. Let's go to a second theological fundamental for understanding marriage. Number two, God devised marriage between a man and a woman. 
We've moved from maleness and females to now femaleness to now marriage itself. God devised, he invented, he designed, he created marriage between a man and a woman. Genesis 2:24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, a man being masculine, a male, biological male, and be joined to his wife. That is a Hebrew word that means a biological female, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage was God's idea, and it was a good one. It was God's design. It was God's plan from inception of the creation between the first man and the first woman. And God is a masterful and a creative designer. Everything he creates has purpose, meaning, significance, and dignity. But only the creation of the man and the woman bear his image. Oh, I love his creativity. I was noticing the intricacy of a spider's web recently. Usually you run into a spider's web and you look pretty foolish trying to fight it off. But the sun was coming through the back of this web. It was beautiful. It was incredible. And I just thought, what a God to have a little insect do that. Then just this week, I don't know if you saw the, some of the the um, images coming back from the deep space Hubble probe. It's incredible. It's incredible what's out there. He's so creative. But his crown jewel of creativity, I believe, is marriage. God invented, God ordained, God even performed the first wedding. He invented marriage and he created, he, he's the only one there to have wed Adam and Eve. And those who maximize and enjoy this gift most are those who acknowledge it as a present, a gift from him and seek to obey him and follow him in their marriage. Strangely enough to say, marriage is natural. Men and women getting married is natural. Romans chapter one, verse 26 he brings up the issue of men with men and women with men and women. Homosexuality even discusses lesbianism as against nature. Listen to what he says. Paul says in Romans 1.26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. That's the description of homosexuality, degrading passions. For their women exchanged their natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also men abandoned their natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. It's interesting to talk to those who argue against same-sex attraction by saying, this is the way God made me. I had a discussion a couple of years ago with, with someone who was saying, look, I, I, he was trying to fight this same-sex attraction sin, but he said, I, I can't, this is the way God made me. I, I can't help this. So you need to understand that the, I have to deal with my ontology, with who I am. And so I asked him, I said, well, what if I told you, and this was a real discussion, I said, what if I told you that 50-year-old man has sexual desires for four-year-old girls. 
and he told you that that's the way God made him, oh, that'd be wrong. Why? Why? If it's against God's natural expression of male and female adults in a marriage, where do you stop? It's not natural. Paul says it is against nature. It is unnatural. That doesn't mean that your heart can't desire things that are unnatural. All sin is unnatural in one sense. And it means that there's grace available and the gospel can, can cure any and cover any sin. But it's not an alternative lifestyle. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20 verse 13, if, any, if there is any man who lies with a male as those lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. It's not just an Old Testament issue. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, talking about who goes to heaven. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that those that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. Go to heaven. And Paul told Timothy, who was pastoring at Ephesus in 1 Timothy 9, 1 Timothy 1 verse 9, realize the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, and immoral men and homosexuals. In other words, the gospel can reach, the gospel can change sinners. And don't be confused, just to cut to the chase, the transgender ruse is an attempt to disguise homosexuality. That's all it is. Or same-sex attraction by pretending to be the opposite sex. I know these may be uncomfortable issues to talk about, but our society has brought the fight to us. And we have answers from God's word. And trust me, that if you stand for these biblical principles, you will be maligned. And that's okay because it's what God's word said. It's what God's word says. God divides marriage between a man and a woman. A third theological fundamental for understanding marriage, we're setting up for Ephesians 5. God regulated marriage for his glory and our good. God is the one who invented. God's the one who regulates what marriage is and how it should function. One of the first things Kim and I ask a couple in our premarital counseling is, why do you want to get married? And why do you want to get married to him or her? It is so interesting to hear those answers. Kim, you'll remember this. We, we asked a couple this one time, and it was sweet. I'm not criticizing I said, why do you want to marry her? He says, because I love her. Remember that? I was like, wow, that's really sweet. Can you get a little deeper? Why should any person get married? Let me make it clear. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the reason that you get married, singles, Please listen, this is encouraging. The reason that anyone gets married is because you believe two things. 
I can glorify God better married than I can single. And I believe that I can glorify God better with this person rather than anyone else. That's the reason you get married, to bring glory to God. Marriage is so important that it's actually addressed and regulated in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Keep sexual intimacy between you and your spouse solidly and solo. Don't go outside of the bounds of that. Jesus actually deepened the marriage commitment by teaching that to think adulterous thoughts is as culpable before God as the act of adultery itself. So you actually keep your mind in the right place, he says. So I want to step back and how is marriage regulated by God? I got five little points here. It's be really, really fast. Marriage number one, letter A, marriage is regulated as heterosexual. It's regulated as heterosexual. You heard me read the verses that condemn homosexuality in a sexual expression, much less a homosexual marriage. And, and, and by the way, the fact that that became uh, uh, okay in, I think it was 2015, that, sh that shouldn't change our theology at all. And our message is not homosexuals shouldn't get married. Our message is homosexuals have grace in the cross if they receive it and seek it. Marriage is regulated as heterosexual between a man and a woman from the very beginning. Secondly, marriage is designed to be monogamous. One man, one woman for life. I know what you're thinking. I've read my Old Testament too. What about those rascals who have multiple wives? Yes, there was polygamous. There were polygamous relationships in the Old Testament. However, when Jesus addressed marriage in Matthew 19, he speaks of one man and one woman as the standard. So we can't let the outliers, outliers define the standard for us. Yes, that happened, but it doesn't mean it was right. It doesn't mean it was best. It doesn't mean it worked out so well. Read Abraham's story. Number three, marriage is the only context for sexual intimacy. Marriage is the only place that sexual intimacy should be expressed. We'll have much more to say about this later in Ephesians 5. But marriage is, sex is God's wedding gift. And it should be relegated and reserved for that. Number four, marriage is organized by complementary roles. Comply, P-L-I, comply, com complementary roles. It's patrocentric, as we'll see in a, in, a, in a few weeks. By patrocentrism, the father, what we mean by that is the Bible's description of the family relationship is that the husband serves as the leader, the protector, and the provider, and the center of the marriage and the family and pulls them together toward God. He is the leader, the protector, and the provider. The Bible says that. We will teach that and without being caustic about it, we won't apologize for that. And then lastly, marriage is intended as a permanent earthly relationship. We'll learn that marriage is wonderful, but it, it goes away at death. And Jesus was clear about that. There's no marriage or giving marriage in heaven. 
but it's permanent on this earth. Much more to say about that. I'm so thankful that God gave us marriage. I am such a beneficiary of that gift. See, early this morning, going over my notes and praying over the sermon and got to this point and went to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. Solomon says, Enjoy life with the woman you love all the days of your life, your fleeting life, which she has given you under the sun. And then he says this about your wife, men. For this is your reward in life. Ecclesiastes 9, 9. Kim's my reward. And I still can't believe she married me. We're almost three decades in, and I I just love the gift that God has given me. Oh, we have difficult days and moments and arguments and just like everybody else does. That's just a part of two sinners living together. But she's my reward. I'm so grateful to God for her as such. 1 Peter 3, 7 calls marriage the grace of life. I'm so thankful to God for that grace and for that gift. Puritan Thomas Adams wrote, As God by creation made two of one, So again, in marriage, he made one of two. As believers, we must conclude that God invented and God designed and God regulates marriage and thus knows best how it should work, how it should glorify him, how it should bring joy and pleasure to men and women. So we look to God's word for our instruction and our definitions of marriage. Very quickly, four takeaways. Four words, all start with H. Hope, help, holiness, happiness. What do we get in marriage? We get hope. Uh, It brings such hope that God will reveal the gospel through Biblical marriages, there's hope that it is more than just a relationship we share. It's actually a ministry. Help. No matter what kind of marriage relationship you're in right now, if it's held together by duct tape and toothpicks, there is help. There is no, zero trouble that you can experience that God's word will not give you grace and help and hope for. So hope, help, Third, holiness. God intends, we'll read this, we'll study this intently. He he redeemed the church, his bride, so that she might be holy and blameless before him. And that is the paradigm for every husband to treat his wife and his family moving toward holiness and righteousness. And number four, happiness. God intends for married people to be happy because they're married to each other. We're going to study that in depth. Now, I say all that, and I come back to where I began by saying, 
I'm very aware that there are folks that this is tough to hear for. You've been widowed. You've been divorced. You're yet to be married. And you hear these things and you think, oh, I wish. Can you just hear me and us say, we hear you? But can you indulge as we go through this passage to help those of us who are married to increase our glorifying of God by this passage? Pray for us as we pray for you. Let's let this be a unifying series in our church and not something that divides us. It's healing instead of wounding. And for those of us who are married, let's be aware of those who are not and why. And for those who aren't, pray for us who are that we can glorify God in our marriages.